Welcome to Truth Talk with John Morgan of Traders Point Church of Christ. Traders Point Church of Christ is located at 8220 West 82nd Street in Indianapolis. More information about worship times and Bible study can be found at traderspointchurch.org. Good morning and welcome to Truth Talk. My name is John Morgan with the Traders Point Church of Christ. I'm here with our evangelist Jeremy Bard. We're going to be studying, uh, beginning our study in the book of Ezra this morning. Uh, We just concluded a study through the Gospel of John, and we're going to take the same approach, studying through this time two books, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, If you're not familiar with those books, they go very well together. They're telling basically the same story of the people of Israel returning from what was originally Babylonian captivity, now Persian captivity, returning back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And so that's a story that we're going to look at over the next several weeks as we study through uh, those two books. So grab a Bible and study along with us if you can. We're going to look at the first two chapters of the book of Ezra this morning, and we'll do a little bit of introduction to uh, the book uh, historically and set the context for what's taking place here as we begin our study. So, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off as, as we start the book of Ezra this morning? When we think about the book of Ezra, you had just mentioned, I think historical context is really helpful, especially when we get to Ezra, and he's going to be a a key character, of course, in the book named after him, Ezra, uh, who is a scribe, but yet he doesn't really show up on the scene until much later on. Mm -hmm. We're we're not going to talk about Ezra the person today or even the next couple of weeks, I think chapter 7 before Mm -hmm. he kind of pops on the scene. But what happens is, as you made mention, is we're getting the story of after Babylonian captivity, the people of Judah being pulled away there into Babylon, Jerusalem destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and them being certainly in captivity there for a while until the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. And, you know, that is, you know, the story that we see, you know, in the pages of the Old Testament, these nations. It's almost the story, you know, Another Old Testament book in the book of Daniel at the very mm-hmm. outset of the Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, who his name pops up here in Ezra chapter one. But Nebuchadnezzar has a you know a dream, and he, he has a dream of a big, you know, huge figure, and each part of it is very different in its metals, and he's having trouble certainly deciphering what that dream is all about. And Daniel is on the scene, and uh, th- with God for sure, he's able to interpret that dream, and he lets them know that listen, you're a great nation, you're the nation, the head of gold. But basically lets them know your, your nation isn't going to last forever. And he probably thought that was going to be the case. They mm-hmm. were the world power. But there's going to be a nation to come after you. That breast of silver, the chest of silver, which will make mention of the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And we can read about it in Daniel's book, how it is that the Persians come in and, and they take over from the mm-hmm. Babylonians. And the Babylonians are now out. The Persians are in. And the Persians deal with conquered people very differently than the Babylonians. And so the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of kick off the idea of the people of Judah going back to Jerusalem. Ezra doesn't go back with the first group. a man by the name of Zerubbabel Mm -hmm. takes the first group back. 50,000 or so kind of go back and they begin 
rebuilding the temple, which is a, a good place to start. Yeah. They don't do a great job. We'll read about that here in the book of Ezra. They kind of get halted a little bit, but mm-hmm. they ultimately they get the they get the job done, and the restoration of the temple is there. And then Ezra shows up on the scene and kind of provides a restoration of the people spiritually. And then we get into Nehemiah's book. He'll show up on the scene later, even than that, and his focus will be on you know the city itself more mm-hmm. specifically the walls around the city and the the building. Of uh, a building of those, these two books have always fascinated me. I mean, they're two of my favorite books in the entire Bible, and, and there's so much here historically. Obviously, if, if you're interested in the history of the Bible, I mean, these two books provide a great deal of that. And looking at the history that surrounds each of them is really interesting in a lot of ways. But even more than that, both of these books provide tons and tons of, of personal spiritual application that is extremely real in our lives today. I mean, both of these books do an outstanding job of giving us a lot to think about in our own lives. And that's why I think it'll be such a good study uh, over the next several weeks. If you haven't studied these books, this is a really, really good opportunity to look through these books and see what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn from them today. But as you mentioned, and one thing that you and I were talking about before we started this, is in regards to the historical context of all of this, one thing that's always been kind of, I've never really fully understood, is that where Ezra and Nehemiah are placed physically in our Old Testament isn't where they fall chronologically. If you right. have a chronological Bible, for instance, Ezra and Nehemiah will be at the very end of the Old Testament, really right before you get to Malachi. And so those two books, while they fall in your in your Bibles right after Second Chronicles, historically that's not where they're set, and so that's just something to keep in mind. But as you mentioned, really the time leading up to this the Old Testament talks about extensively. I mean, many of the prophets prophesy about the people of Israel going into Babylonian captivity, even how long they're going to be in Babylonian captivity. And then the prophecy is there that they're going to return to Jerusalem. Right. And so what we're reading here is really a fulfillment of prophecy. God has talked about this extensively for generations and generations, that his people, after going into captivity, would be allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And so not only is it interesting to see kind of how the people react to all of this and what they do when they ultimately get back, but also keeping it all in the context that this was God's plan for his people all along. He knew that they were going to have the opportunity to come back, and this is a fulfillment of that. And so when we see the the decree made by Cyrus here in chapter 1, yes, this is great that Cyrus is doing something like this and allowing the people to go back and expressing his desire to see them rebuild the temple. Uh, but we always need to remember that this was God's plan. This, was, this wasn't Cyrus's plan. This is God's plan for his people being fulfilled, and he's using Cyrus here to do that. Yeah, I think it's also just historically, just timeline-wise, you know what's nice, and we, we'll, I think we could talk more about this when we get into Ezra chapter 1 and Cyrus himself, but, you know, even historically, I mean, archaeologically, there are a lot of things that we can put our hands on, specifically about the Persians, even the Babylonians, but definitely the Persians. There are tons of things that have been uncovered about the Persians themselves, and you're able to get a very distinct timeline uh, about, you know, when Cyrus is made mention of, or even Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. and, and some of these other uh, kings of Babylon or kings of Persia that will run up against by name, that really helps historically to put
put these stories, I mean, in a very tight window. It's not a, it's somewhere between in here, you know, a hundred years of difference. I mean, you can pinpoint these two mm-hmm. books down, you know, really well. And I think that is, that goes to the reminding, you know, reminding each and every one of us, the stories that we read in, in God's book here are real stories, yeah. and they're written about real people, not made-up fiction or made-up right. stories or, you know, we're just going to kind of, or even historical fiction, which is a, you know, a popular genre of books that mm-hmm. people read mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, we're going to use the historically accurate Persian Empire and kind of toss this fiction story into it. That's not the case at all. These were real people, real stories written about, you know, in real time. When we get into chapter one, you know, there's a very important archaeological artifact about Cyrus himself that talks directly, that you can physically go see, you know, that makes reference to all of these things. But I think it's just timeline-wise, you know, when you have the people going back originally with Zerubbabel, about 537 B.C., mm-hmm. somewhere in that neighborhood that they're going back. Ezra, he's not a month later after that, or, yeah. you know, he's not even a year later. He is decades later after that. And so maybe we'll talk more about that when we get to Ezra actually showing up on the scene, you know, much later on mm-hmm. in this book. But I think it's, you know, it's just interesting to kind of keep that perspective as well, that when Ezra shows up on the scene, or even when Nehemiah shows up, it's not a few days after the people have been released right. to go back to Jerusalem. It's been a generation mm-hmm. even, or, I mean, decades after decades that the people have been back, and it's, you know, the temple hasn't, you know, didn't get very far, the walls right. didn't get done at all. And so to keep all of that in historical, uh, you know, in the historical places is easy. And I think that's really interesting when you're studying certainly two books like this. Yeah, I think the book of Ezra is going to cover roughly 80 years mm-hmm. in these few chapters. And so, it, like you said, it's going to move quickly and there's going to be time jumps throughout this, which is actually very different from Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Nehemiah only covers about a couple of years at oh, the right. most. Right. And so time slows down a little bit when you're studying through Nehemiah. But Ezra is going to cover a big chunk of time here, and that is important to keep in context because as you see the lack of progress in some situations, it's easy to think, well, they just got back. I mean, come on, give them, cut, right. them, a, cut them some uh, slack there. But in reality, a lot of time has passed as we go through Ezra, and so that will be important uh, to keep in mind. Matt, let's go ahead and get into chapter 1 because I think it, the way the book, the book begins is really important, and we talked a little bit about it already. But, but the book is going to be introduced by looking at the decree that Cyrus has made. And before that proclamation is even introduced, the idea that this is from the Lord is put forth in a very clear manner. And I think it's important, again, just to reiterate that, that what's happening here is all part of God's plan for his people. He knew the Babylonian Empire was going to fall. He knew Persia was going to take control. And he knew his people were going to be sent back. That was his plan for them all along. And the book begins really in that way, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the king, King Cyrus of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. This was the Lord at work in the lives of Cyrus and in the lives of the people of Israel. This was his plan for them all along. And that, I think, really sets the stage then for what's going to take place in chapter 1. Yeah, there's no question. And it just it paints a picture of, of God being in control still. Yeah. And that's a huge theme in probably every book of the Bible that you're able to see that from the very beginning of time all the way certainly through the Gospel of John that we've just studied with the story of Jesus. 
you know, the idea that God is in control. And, and even here where it seems as if Babylon was in control or Persia, they're in control. I mean, that's what it looks like. Yeah. If you're living here at this time, I mean, it looks like Persia, they are in control and no one else is above them. They are at the very, very top. But as this book opens, we're reminded that's simply not the case. I mean, God remains in control and he can use Cyrus, king of Persia, to get his will accomplished. And and you've made the point already from all over the the books of the prophets, which you've said, interestingly enough, will come much later on yeah, in your Bible. Right. But I mean, the prophets themselves will talk over and over and over and over again that, listen, Judah's going to fall. There, mm-hmm. That's going to happen. But there's going to be a remnant re- to return. I mean, there's going to be a return to Jerusalem. And that has been said by the prophets of God for centuries, and now you're able to see that. And it happens that way because God's in control. I mean, he's been, he's always in control. There's not a moment in which it was out of control, or he was confused, or he lost control. He's always in control. And I agree with you. I love how this book starts with Cyrus, who is seemingly in control of everything, we're reminded that, no, 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 God, he is the one who's in control of everything. Yeah, and there's even indication here that on some level, Cyrus even recognizes that in the way that he begins his proclamation, where he says, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. Mm-hmm. And, and we were talking before we started this, that he actually uses God's name Yahweh there, which is the Jews' name for him. And when he says this, and so there's some on some level, even Cyrus understands that this is all part of God's plan, that he has given him the control and the power that he has, and he now is going to in turn send God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. I think it's an interesting point to make here that you know we don't we don't know a lot necessarily about Cyrus's specific relationship with God. But in this proclamation, it's very clear that there is some level of understanding that that he is not the one that is in control of all of these things. Even he recognizes that God has given these to him, and he's going to now send them back uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild. And so I think when we talk about the, the idea of God being in power, certainly the the prophets who have prophesied about this time recognize that. The people of Israel, I think, are going to struggle with that at times, but they certainly, I think, on some level understand that. And even this Persian king understands that on some level, that God is the one who is in control of all things. Yeah, I know we've made mention of the book of Daniel already, you know, a couple of times, but just timeline, it certainly fits here at the very beginning, you know, of course, of the book of Ezra. But, you know, if you're at all familiar with the book of Daniel and certainly the story of the book of Daniel, especially the first six chapters where the narrative is provided for us of the people being, you know, carried off into captivity there in Babylon. And then, you know, seeing kings of Babylon like Nebuchadnezzar or or Darius or even Belshazzar to a point. But it's interesting that even each of them at some point, certainly because of their interaction with Daniel, Mm -hmm. came to an understanding of the power of of Jehovah, of, you know, of the God of the Israelites, that he, they came to an understanding of the power that, that he has and the power that, you know, he is able to exhibit. And, you know, and even those incredible kings were able to get to that place and 
You know, Cyrus is just on the very heels of that. I mean, we're, we're on the very beginning of, and so he's certainly familiar with the Babylonian Empire, mm-hmm. and he's familiar with, the, with Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar's been gone for a little while. He's certainly, we're, you know, just 50 years or yeah. so, so he's familiar with who Nebuchadnezzar is and, and maybe some of those stories that, you know, would, would emanate. And so, you know, it's interesting that you see that in each of the cases, these incredibly powerful men. I think even for us today, I don't think we can parallel the power that Nebuchadnezzar had or Mm -hmm. the power that Cyrus King. Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, we can't say it's kind of like our president, but it isn't. I don't think there is a modern day parallel to the power, the sheer power that Pharaoh had in the story of the Exodus or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever the case may be. These incredibly powerful men, but yet each and every one of them at some point acknowledge in some way God and the fact that, yeah, I, there may, I may have some power, but there remains even something greater that, than what I can even explain. And so I think that's interesting as well that you see that kind of threaded through all of these incredibly powerful but earthly kings almost bending the knee to the certainly mm-hmm. king of kings that we, that we read about. It really goes to show the, the influence that godly people can have yeah. at the highest level. Mm-hmm. I mean, we think about it, even Daniel and, and those who came over who were treated with a great deal of respect, even they came in as, as servants on some level, and certainly the rest of the Israelite people did that were brought over into the Babylonian territories. And yet we see that they had some type of a godly influence right. on the most powerful men in the world. And that, that, I think, speaks volumes to the influence that godly people can have in this world today. I mean, certainly, like you said, there's not a direct parallel today to what we see back then. But I think just the idea of, of, of godly people having significant influence on those in places of power and authority, that's something that we can look at today. We can be an influence for good in our communities, in our country, in our world. That, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be those types of influences and to, to teach where we can and to, to influence where we can. And we see Daniel doing that. And certainly as we see, as you've made mention already, multiple kings throughout the Babylonian and now the Persian empires are recognizing that. And that's incredible to think about. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that's just an indication of the amount of influence that godly people can have in the world, and that's really what we need to be doing today too. Yeah, I mean, we'll see that we're several weeks away, but when we get to the you know very beginning, the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, I mean, we'll see that yeah. kind of play again with Nehemiah in that very yeah. first chapter. You know, the the picture of the impact that he's going to have on the one in power. You know, at that time, and so I, I think it is. It is an incredible application point for us because sometimes we're very quick to to play that prejudge game before we even have a conversation with anybody. Mm-hmm. They'll listen. They'll listen. They won't listen. Mm-hmm. They won't listen. And we before yeah. we even have any conversations. And you know what you see in the Old Testament is you just see people living godly and the power that that influence can have on all types of different people. And certainly Cyrus is included in that list. For sure. And as we get through chapter 1, what we're going to see is that after this proclamation was decreed, that the people of Israel were allowed to go back and start rebuilding, but not just allowed to go back. Cyrus instructed the people in and around the communities of these Israelite people 
to give them whatever they needed yeah. to go and to help them. And so it wasn't as if Cyrus was reluctantly saying, I guess you can go. But he was encouraging that and then giving them whatever they needed to help them along their journey so that they could be successful. That, I think, really takes it to another level. He, he was not reluctant in, in his desire to do this. He wanted them to go and do this. This was something that he saw as important. And so he instructed those around them to help them with all of those things, even giving them back the items from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he seized Jerusalem. He gives those things back to the people who are going to return. And so again, what we're seeing here is, is a man who has some respect for what's taking place here. And he, he wants to see this happen. It's important to him. He wants them to be successful in their journeys. And so he's helping them and instructing others to help them in any ways that we, they can. I think that's really, if I was one of the Israelites who was going back, I think that would be really encouraging to me. Because most of the people who are returning... Most of them, not all of them, but most of them have probably never been to Jerusalem. Right. And so they're going to some place that they don't really know. They don't know what they're going to find. They, they don't know what's there. And so I can imagine this is a very scary thing for them to do. You know, we get into chapter 2 and we see in the first wave it was 40, 42,000 people or something like that that, mm-hmm. that went. I mean, there were millions of Jews living in, in these territories at this time. So a very small number of them right. really end up going back in this first wave. And so these are people who are taking on a task that's probably pretty scary to them. And I think having the backing of the most powerful man in the world at this time, as well as the aid that their communities were providing to them, I think would be very helpful. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it is kind of remarkable to see how Cyrus is operating here. I mean, you made reference to chapter 1 of verse 7 where he says that he brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, put in his temples. And so, I mean, he's pulling stuff out of his own treasury. I mean, that's, in essence, is what he's doing. He's pulling stuff out of his own treasury. And, you know, he says, hey, these things were in your temple. Hey, let's pull them out of my treasury, and you can take them back into your temple. And, you know, we've made reference to, you know, Babylon and Persia several times, and, and rightly so because you're right on the heels one after the other. But it is, it's really interesting to, to be thinking about how they do things very differently. I mean, Persia was not weak, or Persia was, I mean, they were still a frightening and a violent people mm-hmm. at war. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, history will tell you. I mean, they weren't just, you know, kind of come in and shaking everybody's hands and hugging everybody. <laughs> I mean, they were brutal in war. But yet, when, when there was conquering that was done, they handled those conquering people very differently. Where Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, when they conquered a land, they burnt the place to the ground Mm -hmm. and they brought people into Babylon and they tried to convert them basically Mm -hmm. to Babylonians. I mean, that's where Daniel comes into play. But it seems that here the Persians just go about that differently. They're not looking to bring everybody in and turn them into Persians. They're looking to, listen, you stay where you are and you you keep your culture and you Mm -hmm. keep your gods even. Mm -hmm. And you still got to pay homage to us and you still got to pay us you know, pay us for all that. We're still in charge, but you you keep your homes, you keep your land, you keep your, you know, you keep in your place. And it's just a very striking difference, you know, in the way. And that's exactly what we see here in Ezra, you know, chapter one. I I made mention earlier 
that, you know, it's so just historically and archaeologically, I mean, you're able to, you know, piece all of these things together. I mean, one of the most important almost artifacts of this time, something called the Cyrus Cylinder, mm-hmm. is a, you know, it's a small clay cylinder written, you know, in the Persian script that you can see. It's in the British Museum. I, I've seen it. It's, it was much smaller than I'd anticipated <laughs> it being. But it, it, you know, it says, it, it gives an account of him allowing, you know, people to, you know, to go back. Not the Jewish people themselves, but another nation. But it, it proves exactly what's happening here. He's, he's saying, listen, you go back. You go back and rebuild the temple to your gods. Here is some money. And you can read exactly, you know, from this time, this exact same thing happening and just... To piece all of that together is uh, is faith building, I yeah. think, in a lot of ways. Absolutely, it is. And I think it's interesting when you think about all of this. You know, we talk, we've used the, the idea several times of going back. Mm-hmm. And oh. certainly as a nation, that's what they're doing. But I was thinking about this when I was studying it. If, if, if this was me, if I was here, right here in Ezra chapter 1, and I was the exact same age that I am today, I'm almost 35 years old, my home would have been in Babylon, right, or what is now Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. That's my home. That, that's all I've ever known. I would have been born there and raised there. My family would have been there. My job would have been there. My friends would have been there. Jerusalem, certainly I would have heard about because of my lineage and everything that's tied to that and my, you know, my grandparents and all of that. But I have never seen it. I've never been there. I have no direct ties to it anymore. And so, in a, in a sense, yes, they're going back. Right. But in a much more real sense, they're going for the first time. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of what we've been talking about, that, that, that changes things for me when I think about it in that way. Because and I think this goes along with the point that you were just making. This is a sign of faith mm-hmm. on, on the part of these people to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. This is a sign of faith for these people because, again, they don't know what they're going to find necessarily. Much of their even historical documents and records have been destroyed. Right. When, when Nebuchadnezzar did ultimately take Jerusalem, like you said, he burned it to the ground. A lot of their records are gone, and we're going to get into some of that as we study through this because there, there's a lot of confusion when they get back as to kind of the hierarchy of things. and Even even the priesthood is in a little bit of shambles because they don't know anymore. Right. All of these things are entirely new to these people. And, and what we're reading about in these few, first few pages of Ezra is a people who are stepping out on faith to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple to God. That, that is incredibly powerful to me, and along with so many other things we've talked about this morning, as you made mention of, it's faith-building to think about what these people were doing here and how all of this was a part of God's plan for them at this time. Yeah, I mean, restoration is an important word in these two books, in Ezra and Nehemiah, mm-hmm. and it's because it was broken so distinctly, and not just physically. I mean, we see with the temple being rebuilt in the book of Ezra, with the walls around the city being rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah, but it's not just about that physical restoration. I mean, the bulk of the book of Ezra and in Ezra's work is rebuilding the people spiritually mm-hmm. because a lot of that has been lost. Yeah. A lot of that has been, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they just they just don't know as much as what they did generations before. And but their their faith was still there of Jerusalem and God, and so you did have a 
a good chunk of people that was willing to, you're right, we say go back, but <laughs> maybe to be there for the first time. Yeah. And, and it, it's, a, it's a remarkable story of, of people that go back and, you know, the people that, the obstacles that they're going to come up against mm-hmm. in building the temple and rebuilding the walls and, and how they get over those obstacles. That's what makes it just a heavy, applicable, you know, kind of piece of text in these two books is, you know, because listen, we we suffer against obstacles, we come up against troubles, and, you know, we have temptations to, to have a seat or to yeah. not work as hard, and, you know, these two books really help with that. And, you know, it's just the whole setup is now Persia's in control, Cyrus says, hey, I want you to go back, and Zerubbabel gets a group together, and it is... Forty to 50,000 here at the beginning, not the millions that it yeah. was before, but it, it's a good chunk of people, and they take off on this journey to maybe see Jerusalem in absolute shambles mm-hmm. is what they're going to find. Yeah. It was burnt to the ground, absolute shambles when they get there. And we, you know, we're going to kind of lump chapter two in with some of what we're talking about this morning. But chapter two is primarily just a list of some of those names of people and the, the families that went back. And and oftentimes, these types of lists are easy to overlook because 99% of these names we've never heard before and we're never going to hear again. Or can't pronounce. Or can't pronounce, right? There's a couple of them we've we've heard of before, but most of them, you know, we we don't know anything about. But, But I do think it's important sometimes to just look at lists like this and recognize, you know, the Holy Spirit preserved these people's names for all of us thousands of years later to read about and to to think about and that there's something to be said for that that maybe we don't know them but God certainly does right. and he was with these people on their journey going back to Jerusalem and he, he wasn't he wasn't letting them do, do this all by themselves he was right there with them to help them along the way and that's impactful when you see some of these names that we don't know anything about to know that God knows them each individually and he knows and was watching what they were doing during this time period and, and the importance of what they were about to do. And so while sometimes these are easy to overlook, I think it's important sometimes to at least stop and remember, wow, these, these people are important to God, even though I don't know them. They're important to him. And, and what they were doing was extremely important to him. Yeah, and, and it continues to put that real people in history stamp on things. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as real as Ezra or yeah. Nehemiah or Zerubbabel. I mean, those are names that would be, or Cyrus. I mean, just as real as those guys were, all of these people that are listed in chapter 2 were right there with those people. And you make a great point. God knew all of these people mm-hmm. to the point that now he, they're recorded for all of history right here in Ezra chapter 2. Yep. We'll go ahead and stop there this morning. Hopefully that gives you at least an introduction to the book, and we'll pick up in chapter 3 next week. So thank you for taking some time out of your day to study along with us. If you're in the area looking for a place to worship, we'd love to invite you to come and be with us at the Traders Point Church of Christ. We meet at the corner of 82nd and Lafayette Road. You can find all of our times of service on our website, traderspointchurch.org, as well as our Facebook page. So please follow us there and join us for worship if you can. Thank you again for your time. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Truth Talk with John Morgan of the Traders Point Church of Christ. Traders Point Church of Christ is located at 8220 West 82nd Street in Indianapolis. More information about worship times and Bible study can be found at traderspointchurch.org. You can hear Truth Talk every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here on 98.9 FM WYRZ.